Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Tim. I just wanted to, I was reflecting. It didn't take long. I, I wasn't distracted. I don't want you to think I was daydreaming, but uh, I was uh, watching over from the side, and I got to thinking about Tim, and uh, Timothy is his full name. That's his, you know, Christian name, <laughs> literally, too. Uh, Timothy means, well, it's a combination of words from the Greek language. Um, Tim from Timao, which means to honor, uh, to value, to acknowledge worth. And then the, Timo the, the stands for God, uh, from Theos. And so I thought, how fitting that Tim is a worship arts pastor leading us in valuing God's great worth, acknowledging and honoring him. So that's just for free. No charge. Uh, We're in our series on Revelation, and... uh, I've got some slides about that, I believe. But in your bulletin this morning, there are some notes, and I wanted to draw our attention to the pattern of the message, and uh, they'll put that up in just a moment, but it's printed there for you. And I wanted to draw your attention without uh, spending way too much time on each of the points. We went through that a couple of weeks ago when we were in the uh, first message of Jesus uh, to the church of Ephesus. And here, where we would expect, where we would expect correction we get some encouragement, and we'll, we'll see that especially in verse 10, and I'll explain why I think uh, that subtle change takes place here uh, as we go. So what I'd like us to do is read, and let's begin in chapter 1 because, as I had mentioned, the solemn pronouncement of Jesus of draws upon certain attributes, characteristics of Jesus in the vision of John from chapter 1. And I wanted us to have this in mind because it bears a lot on our reading. So we're going to read from chapter 1, starting the second half of verse 17 and 18, and then we'll run to chapter 2, verse 8. Verse 17 starting in the middle, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now let's uh, pick up in chapter 2, verse 8. And this is Jesus, to the angel of the church community in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and did come to life. I know your tribulation 
and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested or tried or tempted, all the same word. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Prove yourself faithful or show yourself faithful would be, in my opinion, the more accurate translation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just to Smyrna, but to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, I'm not sure what you were thinking when you came to worship the Lord this morning, but Jesus wanted Christians in Smyrna and churches in the province of Asia, the seven churches which represent the perfectly, as it were, uh, all of the churches, he wants them to think about death. Uh, historically, and I'm speaking of myself now, uh, historically, I'm not big on it. I can't remember ever wanting to ponder and contemplate or think about death. If anything, I, I wanted to avoid the topic, put it aside, evade it, kind of anesthetize the whole idea by fun and diversion and entertainment. Death, I think we can agree, gets in the way. In college, I had a quirky friend named Roland. He had an annoying habit of interrupting our conversation with, you know, someday you're going to die. What? Where did that come from? It, it always creeped me out. I mean, we weren't even anywhere near the topic of death. And just out of the blue. It was the most cringeworthy, uncomfortable thing. It, since we were together off and on, I mean, I got that quite a bit. I just, it was like a slap in the face every time. It's like, where do we go now? In time, though, I learned to say, yeah, someday, but not today. Jesus wants Christians in Smyrna and all the churches to think about death. Naturally, that's what I've been doing all week, especially Thursday, which becomes a focus of interest for me because that is a day that is devoted uh, 
to kind of, you know, I'm working on preparing, reading, praying, but Thursday is all day. And it doesn't mean you don't do anything else. I should not do anything else, but you check your email, you know, you eat your lunch, that sort of thing. And I checked my email in the morning, and in the morning I received the Latin word of the day, which I get every day. The Latin word of the day. Do I know Latin? Uh, I know the Latin word of the day. Uh, This was the Latin word of the day. It was to live. And they always have it it put in in a sentence. And this was a sentence. You should always live mindful of death. Shelley was away with the grandkids, and in the evening I watched a little television. It was a drama, and in the drama, a main character, you know, and I, sometimes I'm on my tablet and that sort of thing while these things are going on, and I hear memento mori, which is Latin for remember death. Remember that you will die. I, coincidence, the Lord tapping me on the shoulder. You know, it's, it is customary among philosophers to remind people of their death, and that can be very beneficial. It can be even therapeutic. But Jesus wants more. He wants the Christians in Smyrna, to think about death. He wants all churches to think about death. He wants you to think about death. But he doesn't just want you to think about it. He wants you to anticipate it. He wants you to prepare for it. That way, anything short of death will show the same faithfulness. And more than that, we will prove or show ourselves faithful. That's the message to the church in verse 10. That's the heart of it. He doesn't pull any punches with the church of Smyrna. He doesn't patronize them. There's good news and there's hard news. There's truth, always truth, in the good news and the hard news. And he wants them to prepare. He wants them to be ready. He wants them to show themselves faithful, not just in the good times, not in the easy times, not in the times of luxury, but in the times of hardship. It's been on my mind all week. Actually, it started last week because I started reading ahead. But it has been very revealing to me. It exposes how trivial. Some of the frustrations and hiccups of life can be 
how we can be so, as it were, of unchristian attitude, unchristian spirit, unchristian mindset, unchristian perspective, unchristian outlook, unchristian values, unchristian plans and hopes. Because in a way, we're just paddling with the flow, with the current. We're floating along with the culture. We're evading death, trying to extend our lives. Why? Because underlying that kind of thinking and that kind of outlook and those values is a worldview that is foreign to that which is revealed in Jesus Christ. So it isn't small stuff. It isn't just, oh, there goes John again, or isn't that just like the Bible, having to talk about that tough stuff, you know? Like it is an exception, but it isn't. And it is therapeutic. But it's not therapeutic because it's the better part of something that's altogether vain, empty, and fruitless in the end, it's the better part of something that is even better. And that is that there is no second death for those in Christ. That death is not our Lord and Master. Jesus Christ is who holds the keys of death and Hades who did die, but lives and lives forever. And it's he who speaks to us on this topic, and that's critical. He is, and if he isn't, we have no other. He is the heart and soul, the apparatus, the foundation. He is the all of our hope that sustains us. And we may tremble, we may sweat, we may cringe, we may curdle, and don't think we don't in the face of death. But it calls us to look to him, and that's what he's asking for right here. That's where true faithfulness is found. We don't prove ourselves faithful in our own strength, or what Paul would say is the flesh, but in the Spirit, in Jesus Christ. Within a generation of revelation, Ignatius of Antioch, which is Syria, Just think about this, by the way. Ignatius was born in the middle of the first century, one of the earliest Christians. His writings, which have come down to us, we have seven writings that have survived, seven writings of Ignatius of Antioch in Syria. That Syria that has been bombed to smithereens. And there is still the church there. 
they who were Christians before us. Throughout all that strife that we heard from afar, there are our brothers and sisters, actually our older brothers and sisters in Christ that have never left. And Ignatius is the bishop of the church in Antioch, Syria. He was arrested there and taken to Rome, escorted by six Roman soldiers. In their travels, they made many stops, of course, And they made stops in Asia, the province of Asia that we've been looking at. In fact, of those seven letters, he wrote one to Ephesus, one to the Smyrnans, Smyrnians, to be... Who were those little blue characters? The Smurfs, yeah, that keeps coming to mind. But the church of Smyrna. Uh, He wrote to other churches in that area. He wrote a church to Rome, and he wrote a church to the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. These letters we date between AD 98 and 117. That's really early. To have those survive in addition to the New Testament is remarkable. It's a window on life at that time. He wrote to Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, the church we're looking at, and this is what he wrote him. Stand firm like an anvil being struck with a hammer. That's faithfulness. Some, well... Ignatius was taken to the stadium in Rome, and although we don't have a specific report, it was customary in such cases, he was treated as a criminal, and so he would have been fed to the wild beasts. And we do get reports of his death, but no specifics. But 40 to 50 years later, February 23rd, that's my... my sister's birthday, Lynn's birthday, February 23rd, 155. Polycarp is now 83 years of of age. And we have an account about a day in his life. It was a Saturday or a Sabbath. And he did stand as an anvil unmovable under the hammer of Rome and the crowds of Smyrna. When he was arrested and taken to the stadium, the police captain riding in the carriage with him tried to help Polycarp. I'm going to condense this account. What harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord? In other words, he says, Polycarp, let me help you. Caesar is Lord. Just say the words. Offer a little incense. Pour a few drops of wine in honor of the divinity of Caesar. And he persisted 
And Polycarp replied, I'm not about to do what you are suggesting. They got to the stadium. It was already full of people for public games in progress. Polycarp was brought before the Roman proconsul, who is vested with imperium power because he is as a consul wherever he is at, and he is the representation of Rome in the province of Asia. We call him a governor, but it's a little bit more than that. He's in his private box at the stadium. Polycarp is brought in. He asks Poly, are you Polycarp? And Polycarp admits it. The proconsul says, Polycarp, have respect for your age. Swear to the divinity of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheists which would be the Christians. So Polycarp, and I'm quoting, solemnly looked at the crowds and motioned toward them with his hand and said, away with the atheists, referring to the pagan crowd. But when the proconsul pressed him, swear the oath, he said, I will release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp said, for 80, I said 83, excuse me, it's 86 years. For 86 years I've served him as my master, and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the proconsul pressed him further, swear by the divinity of Caesar to which Polycarp replied, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the divinity of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. If you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. At that, the proconsul sent him his official spokesman onto the floor of the arena center stage to proclaim loudly three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The entire crowd, and I'm quoting, Gentiles as well as Jews living in Smyrna erupted in a frenzied roar of shouts. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians here, the destroyer of our gods. He who teaches many not to worship or to sacrifice. And the crowd called for Polycarp to be torn to death by vicious animals. But the Asiarch, that official who presided over the public games and religious rites, announced that he had already brought the animal hunts of the day to a close. And at that, the crowd chanted in unison that Polycarp should be burned alive. And he was. You know, I used to worry about drowning. I thought, oh, man, I never, I don't want to drown. And I'd hate to burn to death. I mean, surely at some point you think about how would you like to go, you know. Well, just in my sleep. But, you know, never once did I historically and even even lately as a Christian, 
to, to, to imagine not only the kind of death, but the public ridicule and shaming. You have to prepare for that. But there's really no way you can prepare except to get your eyes on Jesus Christ. To turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. Because it is he who did die and lives who holds the keys of death and Hades and who calls us to show ourselves faithful no matter what, literally, even unto death. But there's powerful medicine in that. Because if we do that, we will be living in his strength each and every day so that we are not taken by surprise or unawares or we will respond and recover more quickly when these trivial, petty little things irritate, unnerve us, set us on our ear, and make us look ever so worldly. And I include myself in this. You know I am. Because I know what that's like. Not everyone around you may see it or feel it, but you'll be going through that kind of internal process when you're so heavenly-minded, right? When you're thinking about the Lord. When all of these little human earthling things begin to trigger in you a more quick turn of approach and focus to the Lord. And that's where our faith is energized and activated. And sometimes with those who know us in the Christian family, sometimes it's best to just, you know, if they, they're aware that you didn't handle that perfectly right from the beginning, for you to stop and say, oh, man, you got to forgive me here. I, I, I didn't handle that so well. But even that acknowledgement, even that apology, even that turnabout, that change of outlook and attitude is an evidence that you are interacting. You're pinging off the Lord. His Spirit's moving through you. That's how we grow in Christ. That's how we prepare so that indeed we can fulfill what Jesus is asking of the church of Smyrna and all the churches. He who has an ear, let that one hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to Smyrna, but to the churches. Show yourself faithful, even as far as death. But when you're looking at that perspective, this is not unusual. Paul, 2 Corinthians, opening chapter. We die daily. We live as though we're dead. Galatians 2.20. It is not I who live. I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's, it's not me living. It's him. 
This is the same theology, if you will. It's the same truth underlying all the things that we read. I'm trying to give you some from looking at the churches. We, we see it right here. And by sharing a little bit about Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp of Smyrna, a little color, but Paul alludes to the animosity toward Christians. Do you know what Christians were charged with or accused of? Atheism. You already heard that. A novel and wicked superstition. They were called enemies of the state. This is something that's hard to probably grasp, but everyone in the empire felt beholden to the emperor. And the emperor was the, as it were, embodiment of the favoring gods of Rome. It was all bound together, and being a good citizen and being, as it were, grateful to the state, it was all bound up. So here come the Christians, and they're very, in our language, we'd say, they're not, they're not patriotic. They don't salute the flag. They won't utter the oath. They don't go along to get along. In addition to what I've been saying about them, they were considered antisocial for that reason. The gods were everywhere. Everyone that wasn't a Christian or a believer in the one God as a Jew was pagan. That's hard for us to grasp. The gods were everywhere. This superstition was everywhere. For them, the 4th of July, Veterans Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, they were all wrapped up in the paganism, the, 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 the... the honoring of the gods in the state. And everything was built around that. And the Christians and the Jews would back away from it. So they were considered antisocial. They called each other brother and sister. So they were accused of engaging in incest. Because they eat the body and the, drink the blood of Jesus, they were called cannibals. They were thought to cause disasters. Anything that went wrong was due to their peculiarity and opposition to the things of of tradition and the traditional gods. In fact, Tertullian, about this time turn of the second century, said, if the Tiber, 
rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens give no rain, if there is an earthquake, if there is a famine or pestilence, the cry is immediate, away with the Christians to the lion. That kind of stuff seems so far from us, doesn't it? In verse, in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your trials. And there are three trials that are mentioned. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. I shared a little of the slander already. The tribulation, this is that word that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, thlipsis. It has to do with bearing, it, being crushed under a heavy weight, tremendous pressure. We were looking at the word to endure. The word endure often is associated with those who bear up under that heavy weight and pressure. In chapter uh, 1 of 2 Corinthians, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, regarding the tribulation or affliction, the thlipsis that has happened to us in the province of Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we were despairing even of living. Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He delivered us from so great a risk of death, and he will deliver us. We set our hope on him that he will deliver us yet again. The second thing is poverty. What's that have to do with? Well, this is not just, uh, oh, this happens in our house. Um, oh, I just finished the last bottle of milk or soda water. Oh, I wish you had told me I were just at the store today. We say, got to have some water. We're in need. There's a word for that. It's not this word. This word is destitute. This is not just a want. This is real destitute poverty. In fact, this is the word that Jesus used when he said, blessed are the poor. And James said, God chooses the poor, these kind, the destitute, to be rich in faith. And Paul praised in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, the Macedonians when he said, in a severest test of affliction, Thlipsis, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. It's just gushed forth in a wealth of generosity. I want to be that kind of Christian. I don't think I am. I'll bet every one of you would say the same thing. I do. But do you know how we're going to become that kind of person, that kind of Christian? Well, we've got to practice preparing for death. We've got to set our minds on death. We can't be avoidant. We need to face it. We need to prepare for it. We need to think about it. We need to realize that it is not the obstacle to us. You see, when death is the obstacle to us, it makes us materialists. 
It proves that we are focusing our hearts on all the values of the things that we can see with our eyes, touch with our hands, feel, smell. And when any little interruption or irritation comes along, I'm being honest with you, I don't like how it affects me. I don't want to be knocked off course. And I often am bumped. And I want to grab the wheel and get back on track quickly. And I do that by turning my attention on the Lord. You can too. But the fundamental issues behind all of that is this idea of dying to self and being alive because he is alive to Christ. And that's the message here in terms of faithfulness in the face of persecution, tribulation, hardship. But it's not unique. It's across the pages of the New Testament, and it has everything to do with these things that I see modern Christianity really being bruised and battered by. I don't want that to be true of us. I don't think you do either. But we can't all do it like a marching military. We have to individually begin to prove ourselves faithful. And we will do that as we set our minds on preparing for death, which is inevitable. As my quirky friend said, you know what? Someday you're going to die. There are a couple of reasons why they were possibly impoverished. Uh, one, Christianity was very inclusive. It wasn't just for the elite. It wasn't just for the well-heeled. It wasn't just for those with a college degree or above. It wasn't just for those who had certain titles or pedigree or looks. And often, it was the underclasses that saw clearly the message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's good to look through their eyes to treasure what we have in Christ. There's another reason that, and this is a real reason, a lot of times they were impoverished and destitute because people kind of roving gangs set their houses on fire, confiscated their stuff, took, took that. We even have this in the letter to Hebrews. Look at this, Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. Listen, just listen to this. You endured, that's that word to in, hold up under flipsis, under the pressure. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And at other times, you came to share with others who were treated that way. In other words, they weren't the object, but they stood by and attended to and visited in prison those who were. 
By the way, when you go to prison, just as here in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, it's the shortest message. There's no correction. These people are doing well, but he wants them prepared. And when you're arrested, we are penal in our, in our system, and, and we try to correct. It's supposed to redeem the prisoner. Prisons in the Roman Empire were not that way at all. They were just holding cells until you went to trial. And generally, if that was your path, that was a path to judgment. And judgment was not always a happy ending. So there was no, this was not, oh, sure, I'll do my time. You joyfully accepted the plundering, there's the word, the plundering of your property and belongings since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How did they know they had a better possession? Their hearts and minds. I mean, they really believe that. That's powerful faith, isn't it? I want to be joyful when somebody takes advantage of me. That shows me that I'm not just living in this world. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Well, it's important to prepare. You will approach a, a great danger with courage if you've prepared yourself. And especially if you've prepared yourself to meet that danger long before it. And you will withstand even hardships if you have previously practiced how to meet them and to prove ourselves faithful. In any walk of life, you know, for a, I'm glad it, it's more common to all ages, little boys, little girls, but when, when I was growing up and I got involved in sports, they don't just, you know, give you your equipment and throw you out there on first base or quarterback. You take it in steps, right? That's, that's what we're talking about here. Get started right where you are. Start to grow in your faith. Start to realize how real the Lord is. Not through exemption of difficulties, but in the midst of difficulties, because that's when your testimony and witness to Christ really shows up. That's when it looks genuine and real. And the overarching theme of the revelation is that we are to be witnesses. That's the power of his life in ours. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. I want to remind you, if God has spoken to your heart, you have a, a prayer concern, 
a decision that you've made, you want to share it with me or others of the pastoral staff, elders, deacons, or spouses that will be up here after we close, we invite you to come to pray for yourself with us or to intercede with us on behalf of someone else. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is so alive, so relevant to our lives in, in this day in this day too. May we begin to walk with you so that we're ready to show ourselves faithful no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.